0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukos of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. What if America had lost the space race and the Soviets had gotten to the moon first? Would America's reaction have been one of defeat or of reinvigoration? If we had lost the moon, might we have redoubled our efforts to explore space, unlocking untold possibilities for humanity? That is the premise of the show for all mankind on Apple TV+. Plus. It is co-created and co-written by the renowned television writer and producer, Ronald D. Moore, whom I am delighted to be speaking with today. Ron has worked on a variety of TV shows over the past few decades, including three Star Treks, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. He is also the creator of the ongoing series, Outlander. Ron is perhaps best known as the co-creator, co-writer, and showrunner of 2004's Battlestar Galactica. Ron, welcome to the podcast. Hi, happy to be here. I take this step for my country, for my people, and for the Marxist-Leninist way of life, knowing that today is but one small step on a journey that someday will take us all to the stars. These words are spoken in Russian in season one, episode one of For All Mankind, by the first human to walk on the moon in that alt-reality, cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, who in, in this reality was the first human to, I think, walk in space, and would have been the first human on the moon had the Soviets gotten there first. Now, the idea that the Soviet Union winning the space race, that sounds like a great idea for a dystopian drama. And, and as an aside, Ron, I'll say that that scene evoked a huge emotional reaction to me, seeing the, uh, the Soviet uh, on the moon talk about Marxist-Leninism. But it's a very aspirational show in terms of space exploration and social progress. So what inspires you to go in that direction with the show, assuming they, I've characterized it correctly?
1: Well, you know, it kind of goes to the uh, to the roots of, of how the show came about. Uh, myself and Zach Van Amberg, who was an executive at uh, Sony Studios for years, he and I had talked uh, in the sometime in the distant past about doing a show set at NASA in the Skylab era, and nothing ever happened about it. And then uh, flash forward to when Zach took over the reins as one of the co-chairs at uh, Apple TV+, Plus, he calls me up and says, hey, I still kind of think about that show we talked about doing a show at NASA in the 70s. What if we did it? What if we did a, a Mad Men style you know, show at NASA in the 70s? And I got excited about, oh, that's really cool because I was a big space buff. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that uh, while you could do that as a character piece in, with, with NASA in the background, the story of the space program at that era, in my opinion, was kind of a depressing one. It was about budgets getting cut back the horizon getting closer and closer the big you know the 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 big ambitions about having moon bases and more space stations and going to mars all just kind of went away and so i thought i would the show i wanted to do was the space program that we didn't get the one that i was promised you know growing up as a kid where we did do all those things where the apollo kept going and you know and the the space race continued and we went out into the into space and beyond um, you know, more aggressively and with greater ambition. So then it became, all right, well, how could that have happened? Why would that have happened? And I, as I thought about it. It became clear that, to, at least to me, that one of the ways it could have happened was if the Soviets had beaten us to the moon. So instead of we get to the moon and yay, us, USA, USA, we did it. Okay, now let's just pack our bags and go home. If we'd been beaten at the last minute by our arch rival, It would have spurred us and pissed us off and made us like redouble our efforts. And now we're really going to the moon. Now we're going to do all these other things because we're so angry and so upset about getting beaten at the last minute. So that's it was always sort of meant to be an aspirational show because I I just wanted to play that story of what I thought the space program was going to be and what it could have been. And then it was a question of, you know, well, how could we get there? And that's how the the Soviets beating us uh, came up.
0: But certainly, I think to me, taking that that direction—that direction—is not intuitive. Certainly, you can imagine again, you know, sort of everything else that seemed to be going wrong. uh, You know, there was, you know, you know, late '60s, sort of a lot of unrest. Uh, You have Vietnam, uh, the economy sort of beginning to turn. Oh, and then we lose the space race too. I mean, it may not have been a very good, may have been very good television, but but certainly, sort of like to me, sort of the natural sort of alt reality version would have been just you know we can really do absolutely nothing right so like like yeah, more, mala- really. more malaise a deeper a deeper pessimism yeah I,
1: absolutely you could we could you you certainly could tell that story I guess I just didn't want to tell that story you know I mean my roots in terms of science fiction go back to growing up as a as a fan of the original Star Trek series in the 70s when it was in strip syndication and the ideals and the optimism and the aspirational quality of that show really spoke to me and, and formed me in, in a profound way. You know, and I got fortunate enough as an adult to actually work in Star Trek, which was an amazing dream come true for me. But the idea of what space stood for, as to me as a child, and what I, you know, what I had a chance to sort of then revisit and for all mankind—that's that absolutely the direction I want. I wasn't really interested in doing a dystopian piece or showing you know, how it all just could have gotten even more profoundly worse and, and bad as, as a result of, of the Soviets but getting us there. I guess I have a certain optimistic, idealistic faith in us that faced with a challenge like that, that we would have stood up, that we would have like stepped up, that we would have like, you know, not just run away and oh my God, they beat us and now let's just really sit and you know suck our thumbs and be upset that it would have like propelled us on to to greater
0: things and it would have like pushed us out into the cosmos is this a show nasa is helpful with
1: they're not you know we approached them early on because we you know one uh, a former astronaut is is one of our uh, science consultants on the show and we have various contacts with them and they've kind of their attitude has been we like it but we can't officially support it because uh Essentially, what has happened, it's just so sad, it's like so reflective of our time. They've taken so much heat over the years, and spent so much time having to swat down this preposterous thing that the moon landing was faked. But now they basically have a policy that says, if you're doing something historical, and it involves NASA, it has to be absolutely true. They don't want to support anything that has a fictionalized quality, or you know alternate reality quality of the space program. Even though ours is a very positive view of NASA, obviously, sure. it's very supportive of it and tries to be as accurate as possible. So they just kind of said, you know, uh, we're with you in spirit, but we're not, we're not going to give you the, the official. So if you look closely, you'll see that, you know, our NASA logo has been slightly altered. And, you know, it's not so ah, we don't really, really. use there. Yeah. If you look at the meatball NASA logo, you'll see that the, the, the red V goes in the other direction. Ah, amazing.
0: Uh, uh, one of the characters on the show, and it's just because I've uh, I fairly recently had read read a biography, and you know, and especially his sort of involvement also with uh, uh, with with Disney over the years was Werner von Braun, who is played in the show by uh, by Colm who is president of the Twelve Colonies. Uh, Battlestar fans uh, may may remember. Uh, what is your take on Werner von Braun? Uh, someone well, who was controversial because of the you know the V uh, the V two rockets and World War Two and so forth.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, that that aspect really came from my partnership with Matt and Ben, who who co-created the the show with me. They had already done uh, research and uh, stuff on Werner von Braun and were interested in him as a historical figure, and they got deep into Operation Paperclip. And I didn't really know that much about that before we got into the project. And I had to kind of personally struggle with my own kind of childhood, you know, he, not hero worship is too strong a word, but I certainly thought he was one of the the heroes of the program and looked up to him and always you know, didn't have, didn't, didn't, uh, I tried to dismiss a lot of, well, you know, he, he was a German and sure he fought for Germany, but it was a war and these things happened. So I wasn't, I hadn't really gotten into the nitty gritty of, of the evidence and what had piled up and what, what probably he knew. And what came, what came to us or what was shown to me as we went through it is that there was not, there was nothing, there was no smoking gun, right? There was no absolute, Here is the connection that proves that he knew what was going on in the camps, in the camp that was supporting, you know, uh, his missile facility. But it's hard to imagine he didn't know. So what we did is we tried to play that as close to truth as we could in the show, where the, the photographs were real, the evidence that was cited in the show was real. And even his response to it was kind of drawn and inspired by things he actually said during his army interrogations when he was asked about these things, you know, when he was why he was in the SS and that yes, he went to the rocket factory periodically, but he didn't know. And so we tried to just present uh, what seems to be the historical fact uh, of it and let the audience kind of draw their own conclusions.
0: Um, So this is the space program we sort of uh, uh, did not get. And uh, just for another research project I'm doing, I stumbled across um, what the New York times said uh, after, in 1971, after Nixon slashed NASA's budget for space operations. This is from a New York Times editorial. The budgetary myopia, which forced this penny-wise, pound decision, can only vindicate the critics who have insisted that Apollo was motivated by purely prestige considerations, not scientific goals. It is at being abandoned now that the easily bored world audience has begun to yawn. All this represents an inglorious letdown. For an effort whose brilliant outcome was and is one of the proudest fr- fruits of human uh, ingenuity and courage. So they had always been skeptical. Now, you know, they felt that, aha, ha, you know, what we thought, what we thought all along. Do you think it is is it possible to have a program like this, something like space exploration, which a lot of people are not going to, it's not going to be obvious to people why this really matters for our everyday lives without some sort of external force driving it. In the case of Apollo there was the space race and you know uh, you know US and democracy versus communism that without that kind of conflict and can can we have a, a space program that spends a lot of money and and does things that seem like they're at best kind of basic science and not you know not helping create jobs here on earth or something. Well, I think it's certainly
1: harder now
0: <laughs> than than it would have
1: been if we had kept going then. You know, and this is and this is the premise of the show, is that if the national effort had continued in the moment and had had kept going, it could have been a, a sort of a lost leader in a sense. Like the the benefits may not have been immediately apparent, but if we had just kept going long enough, eventually you would have gotten to where we are now, which is now you see business interests coming in, commercial interests coming in, and you start to see public-private partnerships, and you start seeing. Uh, the diversification of what it means to go into space. Once you start getting into space tourism and you start getting into places where man, there's there's money to be made in manufacturing or, or mining of the moon or asteroids or other planets and, you know, you start seeing other benefits on Earth and you start seeing technological change coming about on Earth because of the space program, it'll start to sort of build upon itself. If that had happened like it did in the show, I think it, it could have all played because the national effort would lead everything, right? And but the, then private industry gets in, and now we're in an active ongoing space program. And then it's just about it's not so much about okay, how much money is Congress spending every year? And it gets bogged down and you know whose district is is supporting what aspect of the space program and everybody arguing about why are we spending money on space and so we have people who need the money here on Earth, which is where we are. If if you could have avoided that and get to the place where the, the national effort hold along you know the the private uh, private enterprise into space then kind of the national effort can recede and can become more about pure science and about true exploration but then things like moon colonies and you know space stations and literal space tourism and just getting people to sort of see the the benefits of space and you know the the sort of spin-off technologies then it all just becomes part of life and it's like oh yeah there's it's not the space program per se there's sort of access to space, there's things that are happening in space. People aspire to work in space, they aspire to possibly live in space. They know when someone's gotten there. It's like you can get to that future, but the path that we took was just so complicated because we did step back at the moment of victory. And it, it's made it much harder to now rekindle that interest because how can you top, you know, Neil Armstrong, the, the, the moment of Apollo getting to the moon was such an amazing accomplishment. It was the peak. And then what the the space shuttle is supposed to top that and, you know, the the International Space Station is supposed to top that and they can't. Whereas if we had kept a presence on the moon, if if we had continued going in the 70s, you know, and I know there's a lot of political reasons why we couldn't, but just to posit it, if we had, then eventually now you're blazing a trail for private interest to get more involved because there's an ongoing space program. It's not just like these one-off things that are so expensive and so difficult and have so much riding on each and every launch. You know, I think you can get to that place. It's just we've made it harder for ourselves. And it's you know, now we're
0: sort of getting to the place where we're just trying to get back to the movie. <laughs> it's so right. ironic. You know? uh, in the show, um, one of the <clears> lead characters, Ashna, Ed Baldwin, portrayed by Joel Kinnaman, he criticizes NASA for NASA for being too risk averse. Is that is that just a purely sort of in show criticism, or do you think that's a kind of a kind of a real world uh, criticism when we when we think about the things that sort of have either gone wrong or not really been as spectacular as maybe many of us had hoped decades ago.
1: I think it's a little bit of both. I think within the sh- in the context of the show, I kind of felt like that's where the characters would go. They would be looking for reasons why they got beat. And it was kind of like, well, this is why we got beat, because we got too risk averse after the Apollo 1 fire, and it made us too cautious, and we lost that spirit, and that's that's the reason. And in the, in real-world terms, I think there is some validity to that. I think that the Apollo 1 fire and the Challenger accident and the Columbia accident, were magnified to the point in the public imagination that then everything at NASA becomes about safety. And I'm not saying that we should risk astronaut lives willy-nilly, you know, that's not the point at all, but these are inherently dangerous things that we're attempting. And there's, you know, we've gotten to the point where space travel, where we're so concerned about that aspect, that it feels like they're really unwilling to take much risk at all. And it's an inherently dangerous undertaking. So then you're sort of saying, well, we're going to do very, very little of it because we have to be so, 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 so safe in every single possible way because we're so deathly afraid, no pun intended, of, of losing somebody. And, you know, and the truth is, it was predicted that we were going to lose more than one orbiter. You know, there were, there were statistical we where we're like, yeah, we were probably going to lose more than one orbiter when the space shuttle uh, program was, was first posited. So it wasn't a shock on a certain level that that happened you know it's an inherently dangerous business but as a result the american public and the way it's it was portrayed and the way we sort of dealt with it it just became my god we can't there's just we just cannot risk their lives anymore and it just and that works against sort of you know you have to boldly go you know you got to be bold you got to take
0: the risk do you do you sort of personally care uh about a space program that isn't that isn't just uh, you know, factories in space, and but also one that really pursues manned exploration beyond the moon, beyond Mars. If there someday there'll be a, a, Discovery One like in 2001, a space odyssey headed toward Jupiter, and there'll be humans aboard that. Do you, is that something you care about, or something they think we should do?
1: I, I do care
0: about that. I mean, I subscribe to that
1: aspect of, of space travel. And, you know, you can say that's because I grew up in science fiction and, uh, and the early Apollo and all that, and that's all absolutely true. But I am certainly of that. I have that gene that wants, that, is, that hears that call, you know, that wants to fly, that wants to sort of look up at the night sky and say, I wonder what that glowing point of light is. and which, I want to go see what's there. And there is a pull that speaks to me very deeply about wanting to go out there and explore and go find those things. You know. It's, and I feel like that taps into sort of a basic human thing that's always been with us. Why do we go across the ocean? Why do we climb the mountain? You know, all the things that, you know. these are cliches that we talk about when we compare it to space travel, but they're cliches for a reason, because it does speak to that same basic human impulse. You know, I mean, there's a reason why in 2001, the movie, when, when the, the ape man throws the, the bone up in the air, it becomes a spaceship because it is a tool to an idea. It does sort of like, once you've invented tools, you want to go somewhere. The tools should take you to something. You start to to reach out and explore. And so for me, uh, you know, manned spaceflight is a very important thing. I really get excited by the idea of people going to Mars, going to Saturn, going out somehow beyond the solar system, going into deep space. It's like there's a huge universe out there and we're just sitting here, you know, Tooling around the same big ball of
0: mud for you know
1: millennia. When do you think we're going to see the
0: uh, season two?
1: Uh, it should be sometime after the New Year. After uh, Apple hasn't given us a, 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 an air date yet, but it'll be it'll probably be sometime after the New Year. I know that just because I know how long post production is going to take, and we just wrapped. We literally came back and had to pick up the last two episodes of season two just a couple of weeks ago. We we came back in under the quarantine protocols shot the last two episodes and now we're in post-production on them. And that's going to take weeks, you know, in a couple of months just to get the episodes ready. So we can't really be on the air before the new year.
0: Um, but I, ha- I, there has, there is a season two trailer out which suggests the space race continues, but so does the cold war. And we yeah. see kind of a, I guess more of a militarization uh, of space. Can you, Without going into spoilers, can you just give me a little bit of what your thinking is when you were you know, contemplating what a second season might look like?
1: Yeah, we started talking about, I mean, we mapped out a big journey at the beginning of the, of the show of sort of what each season was going to be like. And um, the second season did feel like, OK, now we're going to jump 10 years roughly and we're going to get into the 80s. And now Reagan is, is president uh, and the Cold War has moved into space, and so the Soviets and the Americans have expanded their, their their lunar bases, and they start getting into an era when, you know, Reagan and the and the Soviet Union were were, were going face to face down on Earth. Well, wouldn't they also go face to face up in up in space as well? And we want to play that and see how those how our alternate history uh, would treat that. And so there's some interact there's sort of some uh, interactivity between events that happen on earth and how they affect what happens on the moon and in low earth orbit and vice versa and you see the 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 cold war competition between the the superpowers get really intense and get hot and it starts to become a more more military uh aspect as, as reagan brings in sort of his philosophy and the soviets becoming more aggressive because they have now had an enormous you know victory in the cold war of of getting to the moon first and an increase in their prestige around the world and getting more allies and the, you know the warsaw powers being being more stable and just having a, a different kind of uh, communist threat on earth and it just felt really interesting to now see well how would that play out on the moon how does that play out in, in terms of the space race
0: hey, that trailer you actually have reagan and some narr- you have reagan narrate that trailer and yeah. uh, a lot of space historians, they consider him a very pro-space president, raised yeah. the space shuttle program. Uh, in his 84 State of the Union address, he talked about a permanent human president space, as some other uh, subsequent presidents have. Right. Um, and of course, his uh, his challenger speech, the challenger disaster race talked about, you know, sometimes when we reach for the stars, we fall short, we must we pick ourselves up and, and press on. Yeah. Um, is that? Is that the Reagan we're going to get? Are we going to get sort of the utopian? We can start the world over. If, if aliens invade, all the nations will pull together, which is something he actually uh, said. Is that the Reagan we're getting? I think
1: you're going to see aspects of that Reagan. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting <laughs> for me. as It you know, died the world Democrat who was not a fan of Ronald Reagan in my college years. Now in this version of history, it does play you to know, a lot of his strengths. And it's like, I, I am sort of, Having late, we are having Reagan listen to the better angels of his nature, as it were, and uh, he is a big supporter of the space program. And there is that aspect of him. He was a he was a straight up cold warrior in a lot of ways, because so was Jack Kennedy, and so were a lot of people. Uh, but there was the the the, yeah. the same Ronald Reagan that could figure out how to make peace with Gorbachev is is also a part of, of, of our show.
0: Yeah, there, there's that sort of dream, again, there's a dream utopian. You know, hey, Mikhail, let's get rid of all nuclear weapons. I mean, exactly. there's that, it would sometimes kind of gets lost as people focus on, again, sort of the Cold Boyer uh, yeah. uh, aspect. So, no, I'm super looking forward to season two. That sounds uh, uh, phenomenal. Um, one of the ideas I write a lot about, uh, and I think which one reason I'm so excited to have you on, is sort of this idea that America is no longer a future-oriented techno-optimistic nation uh, that it used to be, the retreat from space perhaps being one bit of evidence. But there's also like a lot of other stuff. You know, with that, what we uh, spend on infrastructure as a share of GDP, science investments, uh, underfunding entitlements, not doing much on climate change, uh, electing a president whose campaign is based on sort of nostalgia in all all ways. So a lot of those things to me seem like we are not a uh, future-oriented country. And you can trace a lot of these trends back to around 1970 or so. And I think the culture is part of it, though it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. That You, you mentioned, obviously, yeah, Star Trek uh, uh, in the 1960s, uh, which you were a big fan of even before you uh, later became a writer for it. from um, the next generation, some of the other incarnations. But you had shows like the Jetsons, Star Trek, even 2001 was ultimately, I think, a techno-optimistic show. And Then in the '70s, you started getting a lot of the pessimism. You got all those Charlton Heston movies, Soylent Green, you know, <laughs> Omega Man. And then today, you see America's sort of vision of the future. It really seems just to be like dystopian scenarios, zombies, plagues, climate disasters. You know, uh, oligarchical societies run by the super rich, surveillance states. And Neil Stevenson, uh, the sci-fi author, uh, has like publicly lamented this. And here's a quote from him. No one will be inspired to build the next great space vessel or find a way to completely end dependence on fossil fuels when all our stories about the future promise a shattered world. Do you think our culture produces too many dystopian stories? And do you think it matters?
1: Uh, I think I agree with both of them. I think, I think we do do too many dystopian future,
0: uh, future
1: worlds. And I think it does matter. Uh, it's a little easier to write a dystopian piece. In all honesty, it's easier to like make things really crappy and show people at their worst. And like, what if this disaster had happened and all the people are dead except for these? I mean, it's really easy to kind of go to those places, and because it's a natural place of drama, it's harder to write Star Trek. Which is why there's really no other competitor for Star Trek in terms of, of what we're talking about. You know, Trek kind of stands alone in its optimistic idea of future at least in terms of pop culture science fiction you with know, film and television you know there's really nothing else and Trek kind of owns that space where it has said not only here's a vision of an optimistic vision of the future, but then it's one that probably almost everybody now buys into. It's like if you ask people what they hope the future is going to look like, they're probably going to describe a future that's very much like Star Trek—a world that conquers disease and poverty, and racial tension, and nations no longer go to war with each other, and we go out into the galaxy in peace and you know freedom and you know, representing democratic values. I mean, that's that's the dream, and that's what Trek is all about. It's harder to find drama in that situation. harder to find what is the conflict. You have to work on them more. So it's a little easier, just as a writer, to to draw up the dystopian scenario. And I think think that is a really good uh, point that he made in that quote, that if that's the whole diet, then no one is going to be inspired to do things. You know, Star Trek inspired generations of people. I mean, when I was working at Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, we were constantly, people were constantly coming to us who worked at NASA or worked at in uh, at Silicon Valley who got into those professions because they were inspired by Star Trek because they either wanted to be astronauts or they wanted to be engineers or they wanted to, to make a transporter or they just were so, you know, sort of inspired and excited by the ideas that they saw in that vision of the future that they literally dedicated themselves to doing it. And, We need to provide that for people. We need to give people that kind of hope and that kind of inspiration if we want them to achieve those things because I think culture is very powerful. I think it does does
0: influence how we think and how we behave and what we achieve. Is there an appetite for that kind (laughs) of content? I mean, to me on TV, I'm not sure there's anything more optimistic than like the opening sequence, like the title sequence or whatever um, for all mankind. I mean, it's just, it's like the music and the graphics, yeah. you think, okay, something good stuff's happened. We're headed, yeah. you know, we're we're headed toward the future. Is there, but again, you know, to some degree the market is saying we want zombies and we want, we want now probably we're going to get a lot of, you know, outbreak, even more kind of outbreak and pandemic kinds of, uh, science fiction. Is there an appetite out there from, uh, from, from Hollywood? I, th- I think there is,
1: <laughs> you know, and sometimes, you know, the business, it's slow to, to pick up on what, what what there's a market for and what, what kind of appetite there is. But, you know, the classic example is you know, during the Depression, suddenly everyone just wanted to go to the movies and watch something optimistic and, and carefree and forget about their troubles. You know, and, and Hollywood serves that appetite. So you just kind of need one of these things, some optimistic piece, something that, that does catch people's attention to go and then suddenly you're going to be inundated with 50 of them. Right now, it's just that you know shows like Walking Dead, Nothing Against Walking Dead, but Walking Dead and shows like that have gotten you know so much viewership that everybody just piles on. Hollywood is just very imitative and they see success over there, and they just keep shoveling more and more and more of that out to the audience because the audience is eating it up. But eventually, you get to a saturation point, and then it's like enough already. I don't want to watch another zombie piece. And then somebody offers you something completely different, and the audience will flood over there. I mean, what gives me hope is. You know, shows like uh, Schitt's Creek, which is a strange example to bring up, I know, which I've just started recently getting into because I was like, what's all the hoopla about? And I've been watching it. Right. And it's a show that has a tremendous amount of heart to it. And it is an optimistic show. It is a show about love in a lot of ways. And people go to it and people want that. And you can go down the list. A lot of, There's a lot of great shows on television that are not science fiction pieces that are about heart, that are about love, and are about very positive human values, and there is an audience for that. So I, I do believe that science fiction can tap into that audience. It might be a tough sell in Hollywood at the moment because everybody says, yeah, but people want more zombies. It'll, and again, it'll just take one of those shows to take off or one feature to take off where suddenly everybody wants in on
0: it. Yeah, I I think it'd be very easy uh, to look at Battlestar as, oh, that's a, that's a dystopian show. Uh, I mean, how could you be any more dystopian? You know, most most humans are dead. Uh, not just one world, but a dozen worlds uh, are are basically destroyed. But that to me is not a dystopian show because they don't give up. They decide that we're going to save our civilization. We're going to go somewhere else and we're going to start it all over again. Uh, do you consider that a dystopian show? I never did. <laughs> you know, people said that to me all the time. It's such a dark show.
1: I was like, well, dark things happen in the show. <laughs> Terrible things happen in the show, but I thought it was a very, you know, idealistic show. It was a very, it was people struggling and, and like you said, never gave up. And that always, you know, they were trapped in the night and they were always looking for the light. And they, they that was why I felt at the end, they had to have a happy ending. You know, there was people that were wondering if the show was going to like blow everything up at the end, you know, and everyone was going to die some horrible death. I was like, no, that's, that's not no what the show No way, about. We're not doing that. There is going to be a happy ending this tale because it was about perseverance and survival and about you know what are the things that matter to you as a culture and as a person you know, those were the those were the big ideas and questions that the characters were grappling with
0: absolutely uh one question i know i had to ask because it's, it's come up when i've had this conversation with people um the tech billionaire peter teal uh has, who's a science fiction fan uh has said i'm a capitalist star wars is the capitalist show star trek is the communist one there's no money in star trek because you have the transport machine that can make anything you need the whole plot of star wars starts with han solo having his debt uh that he owed so the plot of star wars is driven by money there's a, so do, do you do you, agree, do you agree with that characterization well, star trek is the communist show i i i he's not wrong
1: <laughs> i can't i can't tell you that those of us who worked at star trek completely dismissed that aspect of the show. Like we even those of us in the writers room would go, what does this mean there's no money? How does this work? How does any of this function without money? In the old show, you know the original series, Kirk would talk about you know Scotty, I'm docking your pay for the next month and you know they had credits and they had bar tabs and there, you know there was some currency. there was some way that people were compensated for things and mining rights meant something. You know, it was only in the later incarnations when Gene, you know, who I only worked with briefly when I came aboard, but Gene had kind of bought into his own kind of, you know, press release that he was a a visionary. And he just kind of decided that in the 24th century, there was no money and people worked, you know, I think the quote was, we work to better ourselves, Picard says at one point. And all of us on the show just went, I don't know what that means, and let's just ignore it as best we can. In fact, I even made fun of it once. In Deep Space Nine, there was an episode it did called In the Cards, and there's a conversation between Jake and Nog. And Nog, Jake says, we don't make, you know, we need, you need to get some platinum, because you know, we, we humans don't have any money. And he's like, yeah, how does that work? We work to better ourselves, says Jake. And Nog says, yeah, what does that mean Exactly and Jake Jake pauses and he just looks at him and he says it means we don't have money <laughs> that's the only explanation uh
0: apparently i think mbc is going to try to oh i guess not remake battlestar but i think the the term i i read was a new story within the uh mythology i don't know if that means a reimagining or whatever but but you really couldn't remake the show and anything that looked like the version you did—I mean, there's so much sort of 9/11 and early 2000s and Iraq War really infused in sort of the DNA of that show. It would, it would have to be a lot different today, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, and I've, I've heard that too. And you know, they, they reached out to me and, and gave me a heads up ahead of time. And they said, "Yeah, we're not rebooting it or reimagining it. It's going to be some story that takes place within the mythology of what you established." You know, okay, you know, wh- whatever that means, it, it, it's fine. Uh, but our show was intentionally supposed to be a show of that moment. It, it did speak to things that were happening in the world then: nine eleven, Iraq, Afghanistan, liberty versus versus security. There were a lot of very current things that we were dealing with in the show. So I think if you're going to do any version of Battlestar Galactica now, it should speak to now. It should not try to, to go back. You'd have to like have a different kind of show. Um, and I don't. And just to say, I don't have a problem with them doing. It. You know, it's not. I didn't create the show. <laughs> no. Glenn Larson created the original Battlestar. I came in and gave my spin on it. So I'm not going to be the guy that says, you can't touch mine, even though I touched right. his. So it's like, whatever they want to do, you know, they're perfectly uh, welcome to, to give it a try.
0: Well, I think you and I are about the same age. I'm very familiar with the original uh, Battlestar, which, which came on the air when there was an absolute desert of that kind of content uh, oh, yeah. on television. You really had to either, there, there wasn't much. You basically had to watch the old uh star trek uh, yeah. uh from the from the 60s which i went and, th- and there just wasn't a lot so something yeah, like that like, they had like movie production values it seemed like it's pretty it amazing was huge
1: i mean yeah you only the only other competitor was like space 1999 it was like the only other thing that was out right there in syndication but i remember uh when i used to always look forward to the tv guide season preview edition that would come out every oh, year oh that was outstanding and Battlestar Galactica was on the cover and that's how I learned about it. It was very exciting. You know, you're coming right off Star Wars, and it's it seemed to presage like a, a renaissance of science fiction's return to television in a big way with, you know, state-of-the-art's visual effects and the whole thing. So it, it was a bit of a, a shock when <laughs> it turned out to be Battlestar Galactica. You know, even though there were good things in it and stuff, I, I watched the whole season,
0: but it was <laughs> certainly not, it was not what, what you were hoping or what I was hoping it was going to be. That said, if you would have looked at all my notebooks uh, from school at that age, you would have seen nothing but me drawing vipers over oh, yeah. all of them. I you know, Different 3D oh, yeah. versions of vipers. The designs were um, great. I mean, the, the original, the itself was, yeah,
1: was a great design. The vipers were a great design. You know, there was a lot of good design work in it. You know, the Cylon Raiders were didn't photograph very well. They were just kind of weird saucers with little ridges on them that just... Didn't look good on camera, but there was
0: a lot of good stuff in that show. Sure, I'm um, just sort of getting near the end here. Uh, there have been, I mean, there are some. We are talking about sort of optimism out there. And there are some. I, I, you know, The Martian is an, is an optimistic film. Yeah. Uh, Gravity. I would even consider yeah. uh, Interstellar a, a yeah. fundamentally optimistic film. So, yeah. so it can it it, it it can be done. Right. So it, it can be done. And uh, and hopefully For All Mankind will be uh, part of it. Is that something you would want to do more of, whatever your next projects might be like?
1: You never know. I'm always drawn to sort of what I'm interested in at the moment. I, I, I do have a very soft spot in my heart for, uh, for science fiction. And I would like to do another optimistic science fiction piece. I would like to do something about the future where things did work out. You know, it's a good future. We we solved a lot of problems, and now go tell an adventure story or tell some big, scary, epic in that setting. And I I am drawn to that as a uh, as a writer to do it. So yes, I would like to, to go there. Uh,
0: the uh, Nobel laureate economist Edmund Phelps has a great book, uh, uh, which, which name I cannot. It is mass mass flourishing, and he's and and his concern is that we are not sort of creating. Generations of kids with kind of a creative, venturesome spirit. That when he was young, all the kids read Jack London and Jules Verne and you know Arthur Conan Doyle, and they just that were that were missing that. And if you if you want a sort of an optimistic kind of aspirational future, you need to have people who 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 have those characteristics. And obviously, the culture. Do you have any ideas on like how to how to make society more like that in any way other than trying to create uh, uh, fiction that, that that generates those kinds of feelings. I, I think the
1: biggest thing is what we you
0: know what we give to our children.
1: You know, I think it's the as parents that's our biggest contribution to that. Show them those pieces. Show them those optimistic stories. Show them those great adventure tales. You know, the things that you loved as a kid that are meaningful to you, that inspired you, that that gave you a, a thrill and a chill. And show those, share those with your kids. You know, I. I I was always astonished when my kids were young. They're college age now, but when my kids were little, there were other parents in our group that would not show them certain of those things because how ah, they're old. They're they're black and white, or you know, they're not going to want to read this kind of book because you know they're they want something that like today. And it's like I think that's all a load of crap. I think that's just like stupid. Kids love good stories, and kids want to you know be inspired, and kids want to look up to things, and kids want to go on adventures and be starry eyed. You know, that's when they're their hopes and their dreams are at their purest. And I think the biggest thing we can do as a society is to inspire our children. And Then they will grow up and the, ch- and the culture changes. It's like those of us who work in, in entertainment can do certain things. And we, yes, I think we should try to produce those things as best we can, but nothing is as powerful as the, the culture that we personally as parents pass down to our children in terms of shows that we show to them, the films we take them to, the games we give them to play, and the stories that we just share with them, which is not to say that they can't watch Walking Dead when they get to a certain age, but it's giving them a bigger diet than them and showing them some things that that make them go, Wow, oh my God. You know, when I I remember I took time to show my son when he got to an age, my my second son when he got to um, he was in first grade, and he wanted to see Star Wars because all the other kids were running around the uh, the playground playing Luke Skywalker. And he said, "I want to see Star Wars," and I said, "No, I said you got to wait. Star Wars is a special show, and you have to be a little bit older to understand it." Because I knew that, huh. it's like, if you go watch Star Wars in first grade, it's just a lot of noise and running around and things. Right. You got to understand what's an empire? <laughs> what's a rebellion? you <laughs> know, what are some of these concepts, right? They sound really simple, but they are somewhat complex. So I made him wait until he was 10 and then, or sorry, until he was eight years old. And I said, on your eighth birthday, I'll show you Star Wars. And on his eighth birthday, I showed him the original Star Wars. And then I said, and on your ninth birthday, I'll show you Empire Strikes Back. And then I showed him every movie in the Star Wars, you know, original trilogy or, or canon on his birthday. And it made him, a fanatic to this day. <laughs> like The <laughs> biggest Star Wars fan you could possibly imagine. But it also just lit that little, it, it, it was a little spark of heroism, of romance, and of this grand adventure that he carries around with him to, his, to this day. And I think as parents, you
0: can give that to your children and you can change the world if you do it. Uh, that's outstanding parenting, uh, Ronald E. Moore. Uh, <laughs> uh, and finally, <laughs> um, what sort of president? does America need right now? A Gaius Baltar, a William Adama, or a Laura Roslin? Oh, Laura Roslin. <laughs> no question. <laughs> so, Laura, so, Laura, so say Laura we all. is the woman we need. So say we all. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today has been Ronald D. Moore. Ron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.